This week, Parshas Nusso, little trivia, it's the longest parsha in the Torah, 176 verses. And it's, um, like we saw last week, very interesting kind of tone and tenor to the parsha. It's very uh, similar, I would say, to Bamidbar and the whole book. It's much, much lighter, I would say, than Leviticus. A lot of really interesting, diverse things that we're going to uh, discuss. We left off last week. Uh, we were counting the Levites, and then we started counting the Levites in family-specific terms, and we discussed the roles, the jobs given to each one of the families of Levi. Levi, they had, Levi had three sons, Kahas, Gershon, Kahas, and Merari. Last week we spoke about Kahas and what they had to carry, what, what their jobs was in transportation. Tabernacle was disassembled and reassembled and transported. And each family of the Levites, and we'll see each individual of the Levites had a certain job of what they needed to carry, of what they needed to carry for the transportation. And, and that is delineated over here. So the Parsha starts, Hashem tells Moshe, don't count the sons of Gershon. Now, for this job, we're not counting the Levites in general, which began from the age of one month, because this is specific jobs of the Levites who are at the age of having this responsibility. We start only from the age of 30 until the age of 50. That's when the prime years of the Levites were to do their jobs in transportation of the tabernacle equipment. And we'll see again in the tabernacle oversight and maintenance and management, and uh, even in the temple itself, the Levites were always in charge of certain jobs. They didn't do the actual work that was done by the Kohanes, the Kohanim, but the Levites, they were the maintenance guys, they were the ones who were the ushers, they were in charge of the doors, opening and closing the doors and directing people all around. They were the ones who were singers as well, and they played music. Uh, and here we're told each one of them gets their specific jobs. Moshe tells uh, the family of Gershon what they need to carry, curtains, the covers, the screens, all the lists of of items that are their responsibilities. It moves on to Merari in verse 29. Again, it counts them as well. And what they need to carry, so you'll notice, they need to carry a lot of the heavy things. The planks, the actual planks and the bars and the pillars and the sockets, the very heavy parts that make up the actual walls of the tabernacle is the job of the Bnei Merari, of the sons of Merari, the third son of Levi. All the pillars. Uh, and you shall appoint them by name. This is verse 32. The pillars of the courtyard all around in their sockets, pegs, ropes, all the utensils. You shall appoint them by name to the utensils they are to carry on their watch. So what does it mean that they need to be appointed by name uh, to carry these things. So the Ramban tells us that Moshe was instructed to give not just jobs to to the entire family, but each one of the several hundreds or even thousands of people were given a specific job. You are part of carrying this, you know, 34th socket or something. Uh, And you are, you 10 people are in charge of carrying this plank. The planks were huge. So Specifically, everyone was given a, uh, a unique responsibility, and they weren't allowed to swap or to help each other. 
If you were given a specific job, this is your job given to you by God. This is your job and you didn't choose this responsibility. It was given to you by God and you cannot shirk this responsibility. Now, why specifically by Merari? So the Ramban says, because the sons of Merari, even though they're, they're, they're third, we did Kahas and Gershon and then Merari. So why only now do you tell us that everyone has their job and then cannot pass it off to someone else? It's because their items that they had to carry was so heavy, there's a greater risk that they may look for uh, uh, look for helpers to help transport them. And they have to know uh, that this is what was given to them, to them specifically, and they cannot pass it off to other people. Uh, the Talmud goes as far as to say that once the temple was built, there were people who were assigned to be Sho'arim and some Mishorim. Uh, there were some Levites who were in charge of the doors, show, like a shar, which means a door, and they were Shorim. They were, they were doormen. They were in charge of maintenance. And then there were Mishorim, those who were singers, to sing, like the word shir. Talmud tells of one Rabbi Yoshua ben Hananiah, uh, in the Talmud, if you need to see the name Rabbi Yoshua, it's referring to Rabbi Yoshua ben Hananiah. He was the student of Rabbi Yochanan Metzakai and the teacher of Rabbi Akiva, amongst others. And he was once, he was a levy, and he was going to help one of his associate levies to open the door, the big heavy doors. So he saw him struggling with it. I'm going to go over and help him. So the other levy tells him, no, 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 careful. Stop where you are right now because you might get yourself in trouble. And Talmud goes as far to say as the if, if one of the people did the job of someone else, if they were a doorman and they decided to single, they were single, they decided to, uh, to take the door, that was actually an executable offense. Be careful. Don't do this. This is my job. Give it to me by God and not to you. And you do your job. Let me do mine. Don't get yourself in trouble. Kohens are able to do whatever job they want, besides for the Kohen Gadol jobs. The Talmud does say, for example, that the Kohens, there was a certain job called Truma Sadesh, and we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, clearing out the ashes of the, of the night in the morning. First thing in the morning, clear out the ashes on the altar. Talmud says that this was a specific omen for wealth. So whoever would do that would become wealthy. So, of course, all the Kohens were jockeying, I want to be the one to do it. And the rule was that every Kohen got at least one chance in their lifetime to do it. And therefore, you cannot have anyone do it twice if there's someone in the room who hasn't done it yet even once. Tom also describes, this is interesting, uh, that initially it used to be that whoever got there first would do it. So they have these, everyone put their alarm clock from the morning, and they all wake up really early, and they have the mad dash from the Kohen quarters in the temple up the altar to try to clear out the ashes. And there was one time that there was two Kohanim running neck and neck. And the altar goes up 10 almost. It's 10 feet in the It's 20 feet in the air. It's up a ramp. And one of the Kohens, he was so eager to get there, he shoved the other guy. He fell off and broke his leg. And uh, afterwards, they'd made a, they instituted that they wouldn't have a free-for-all first-come, first-serve. They'd have a raffle. They'd have a lottery. And only people that had never gotten it before would be eligible for the lottery. And the lottery would be the Kohen would, they would all sit around in a circle. And the Kohen would put, pick a random number from between 100 and whatever. And then he'd start from randomly and start counting. He'd never put up one or two fingers. 
we can't put a thumb because that might you could swap it and do shtick, do calculations. Oh, I've added a thumb. No thumbs. You can't put the thumbs. Either one or two fingers. And then he would start counting, and the person he'd end up with, he'd be the one who did the true sedition uh, that day. Now, um, this this idea of people being given responsibility, so my grandfather used to always say that a parent, a parent is exactly like one of these Levite families. It says, the Almighty selected you for the responsibility of stewardship and oversight and loving and caring and concern for this child. Like, this is your job from God. And you cannot pass it off. And you have to realize how precious that is, how, how important you are and how unique a responsibility you have that the Almighty decided that this child is yours and your responsibility. And just like you see the tremendous care that the Levites placed upon their their jobs, uh, so too this particular child is your job and it's under your auspices and you have an important need to make sure that uh, you do a good job with your precious cargo. Okay, so we have the jobs of the Kohas and, and Gershon of Marori. Finally, we have the final tallies of the Levites that are between tw- 30 and, and 50. In case you're interested, what the final number is, 8,580. Okay, so now uh, all these assignments are because now the Mishkan is finally been erected. This is the same day, same time period when the Mishkan, when the Mishkan was finally built and finished, and therefore we have to assign the jobs to, uh, of, of running the Mishkan to all the various people who, uh, who had those responsibilities. Chapter 5 begins by talking about now we have to, because the Mishkan is extant, we have to make sure that the people who have the ritual impur- impurifications uh, need to be removed uh, from the camp. So, chapter 5 begins, I command the children of Israel that they shall expel from the camp everyone with saras, everyone had a zava mission, everyone contaminated by a human corpse. So Rashi tells us that the way the camp was situated, last week we talked about the various flags and various different groups, encampments around the Mishkan. Um, Rashi tells us here that there were three camps in the Mishkan itself, which was at the epicenter. That was called the Camp of God, the Camp of the Shekhinah. Surrounding them were the Levites, the, the Camp of the, of the Levites. Remember, the majority of the Levites are Levites. Only a few of them are Kohanim, are even though they're part of the same tribe. And then, and then the biggest expanse all around that is the camp of the Israelites. And we have to, if the people are impure, so it depends what their impurity is. If they have tsaras, if they have leprosy, they sent out, they're sent out of everything. If they have zav, we spoke about this in, in Leviticus, have some sort of mission, they are sent out of two, the Levites and the, and the, and the Shekhinah. And if someone is impure because they came in contact with dead people, uh, then they're not allowed to be in the Mishnah itself, but in the Levites, they are allowed to be there. Um, and so they expel them, fine. And the next law is another law regarding stealing. Uh, what happens if a man sins by stealing from someone else? Allah is the need to confess 
the sin that they committed, and they have to pay back uh, with interest. They have to add um, when someone steals, they have to, and they admit it. So if they don't admit it, they have to pay double. But if they do admit it, they have to add 25% on top of it. And they have to return to the guy they stole from. But there's an interesting um, note here. In verse 7, they shall confess their sin. Uh, this is the source that when someone wants to do repentance, someone wants to atone for their sin, they need to confess the sin. The confession is done, of course, to God. We don't believe in confessing to man because your sin is against God. And there's an interesting Rambam. When the Rambam talks about laws of repentance, he makes it very clear that the actual law itself is about the confession. We think that the confession is an element of the repentance. But he spins it the other way around. The repentance is an element of the confession. In order for your confession to be valid, you have to have confessed. You have to have repented. And I, I want to maybe theorize that repentance, it's when someone makes a change of heart, a commitment to abandon the sinful ways and adopt a new path. And that's obviously crucial because if someone if someone professes to change their path but doesn't commit to doing so, how, what's that worth? But the confession, that is an, a verbal activity. And that verbal activity is where someone really brings what they feel inside in their heart and brings it to the surface, exposes it to the world, makes it real and tangible. And therefore, the confession in the heart, when it's manifested with a verbal confession, um, what, what, the repentance in the heart, when it's manifested with a verbal confession, that indeed is concretizes in the person their commitment to change and therefore completes their repentance. Uh, another law here that uh, it talks about someone needs to give their tithing. So there's a very whole list of tithe. There's a tithe to the Levite, tithe to the Kohen. And then it talks about in verse 10, really interesting idea. Someone who does not give tithes. A man who does not give tithes, tithes, he will have the tithes. That's how Rashi understands it. Someone withholds the tithe and doesn't give it, he will have the tithes. What this means is we know, we, we mentioned this before, that tithing, which is, uh, which is charity, is a way of becoming rich. Because the man says, yeah, you give, I'll give you. What if someone says, ah, I don't want to give away my money. So the verse here says, if you don't want to give 10%, you'll end up with 10%, which means you'll lose that other 90%. Interesting uh, idea. Now that the verse starts talking about the law of a sota. Briefly, a sota is, a, is an adulterous woman or a suspected adulterous woman. And what happens... Uh, how we investigate and clarify um, the claim, the alleged claim that she may have committed a, a adultery. Um, so the verse starts, speak to children of Israel and say to them, a man, a man. In the English, it just says any man. But in the Hebrew, it says ish, ish, which means a man or any, any man. When his wife will go astray and commit treachery against him. So Rashi says, why does it say 
uh, a man, a man, two men, as if there's, if every woman is married to one man, and if she goes astray, she's committing treachery against him. Well, who's this other man that they're talking about? So Rashi tells us that uh, at the splitting of the sea, when they had the song, they said, Hashem ish milchama, God is the man, so to speak, of warfare. And therefore, when it says ish ish, a woman who commits adultery is, is committing rebellion against two men, so to speak, or two ishes, whatever that even means. Says Rashi, it's one of them referring to her husband, and one is referring to God. What does that mean? So um, perhaps we could say the Talmud tells us that a, um, a child, there's three partners in the child, father and mother and God. Therefore, when someone gets married and starts building a family, so the man, he gets a wife and a partner in God. And the woman, she too gets a husband and a partner in God. And this is kind of a a unity, a a Jewish home is a unity of a husband and wife and God. Talmud tells us that if the husband and wife are meritorious, there's Shekhinah amongst them. Therefore, this particular unit, this family unit, uh, when there is um, rebellion, it's rebellion not just against one part of the unit, the husband, it's also rebellion against God. And I think for us, it's it's nice for us to just think about the, the fact that in our homes, there's actually the presence of God, the Shekhinah, if we are meritorious. Now, additionally, the Talmud does say that the word kisista, uh, which means that she will go astray, or the word sota, is, comes, comes from the same root as the word shota, which means an insane person. And the Talmud has an aphorism that a person does not sin unless they have a spirit of insanity. Of insanity. Sin is temporary insanity. That's what the Talmud says. There's no, it's not possible to sin unless you're temporarily insane. Now, what does that mean? A lot of people that are, by uh, any clinical definition, not insane, are prone to sin. It's the human condition. Um, I think there's a lot of ways to go with this, but... Um, what is a sin? A sin, by definition, is an act that prioritizes a body existence and this world's existence, and one that neglects and rejects the soul and olam haba. So, in essence, a sin is someone who says that my temporary and evaporating, dissipating entity is more important than the permanent one. It's it's preferring the temporary, even though it's going to tremendously deduct from the permanent. Someone who does that, it's, it's insane. I gave this example before. Uh, to build a house on a disappearing beach doesn't make any sense. It's insane. Someone, if you see someone doing that, building a huge house, and every, every month uh, the tide is right, it's, we know the beach will disappear beyond the water. Someone who does that, it's there's no other way to describe it. It's, it's an act of insanity. Well, how is it different from sinning? And I think in you know there's a Houston specific 
example that I thought of once. You know, suppose someone was able to, to time travel, right? So what's the first thing you do if you time travel back in the past? The first thing you do is go buy stocks, right? Because you know the future. You go buy stocks. Let's say someone is transported back to 1999. What's the one stock they don't buy? Enron. That's right. There's one thing they don't buy for sure. Because you know what? You know the story. We know the end point, right? You don't buy Enron in 1999. Now, what benefit does someone who time travel have? Like, what's the benefit of time traveling? You know the future, right? That's the benefit. The whole benefit of time travel is the fact that I'm going back to the past and I know what's going to transpire in the future. Suppose I could tell you for sure what's going to happen in the future. Well, then you're time travel now. <laughs> Suppose I came here and I say, I'm from the future. I know what happens in the future. So I'm, I have, I'm like a time travel prophet, right? Suppose someone came back. For some, we knew someone was here from 2070, right? We want to take his tips because he knows the future. I know the future. The future is we're all going to die and go to heaven. I know that. I'm a time traveler. Yet people here insist on buying Enron. Everyone is a sinner. Someone insists on buying Enron. I only want Enron. <laughs> and the time traveler looks at this guy and says, I know the future. Your body is going to be put on the ground and worms are going to eat it. Why are you prioritizing it? Doesn't make any sense. It's insanity. And that's what a sin is. Sin is temporary insanity. Has a nice little Houston bent to it. So, okay. So a man, a, a man whose wife she starts to uh, deviate, and she may have committed adultery. Uh, and now the reason why she may have committed adultery is so she is becoming very friendly with another man, and he warns her not to be in isolation with this man. And she goes into isolation with a man anyhow. And we don't know what happened when they were isolated. We have witnesses that he told her, don't become an, don't go in seclusion with this person. She went in seclusion with the person anyhow. We don't know what happened because we don't know it's behind closed doors. So now this woman is a suspected adulteress. She's called a sota. And the rest of the section describes what happens, what, what process happens to her. Unless there are witnesses for the actual activity, the local earth-based court cannot do anything about it, right? Uh, in order for the court, for the, for the based in, for the court, to mete out any punishment, there has to be two witnesses. Um, that's the general rule across the board. There are slight exceptions, like, for example, when there is one witness that says that a man died in warfare – his wife may be allowed to remarry, even though we don't have a body, right? How do we know? Maybe he's still alive. That there are some few, there are a few exceptions, but generally, for a earth-based court, they can only pass judgment when there's two witnesses, two human witnesses. There are some things that are like two witnesses. For example, a document bearing signatures that's like two witnesses. Uh, so there's two witnesses that he warned her. Two witnesses she's secluded. He has to bring her to the Kohen. And that she bring a, she has bring a certain sacrifice. The sacrifice is made out of barley. It's specifically told that it's barley flour, and you don't pour any oil in it. You don't put any frankincense upon it. It's a meal offering of jealousness or jealousies, a meal offering of remembrance, remembrance of sin, a reminder of iniquity. So there's a lot here to parse out in what she brings. Talmud, for example, says that she brings. Uh, a offering of barley 
all other offerings were, uh, with one exception, uh, are made of uh, wheat flour. This is made out of barley. Why barley flour? So Rashi quotes the Talmud is that barley flour, barleys were generally considered a much lower grain and it was used as food for the animals. And we're, we're intimating in this specific activity, in the specific sacrifice offering that when, a, when someone behaves like this, they're behaving like an animal. And therefore, their, their offering they bring is, food of, is animal food. That's what Talmud says. Now, I think a way of understanding this is that what indeed is the difference between an animal and a human? We both have a heart and hands and limbs, organs, brain. Well, what is the difference between an animal and a human? The answer is it's willpower, it's choice. Well, why do we have choice? Because we have a soul. And the way it's placed in, in, in Jewish philosophy is that our body, well, our body, that's like an animal. We have instincts, we have impulses, but we also have a soul. And the soul manifests as well as is with uh, human intellect is the capacity to override the body and to reject it. And therefore, we're kind of strung between these two opposites. We have the body, which is like an animal, and the soul, which is like an angel. And we have to choose which one of those two we're going to prioritize and veer towards. And someone who does not control their impulses and acts like an animal, well, they're choosing to prioritize their body, which is no different than an animal. It's kind of a weak animal, actually. If you compare your body to the body of any other beast that's your size, they could totally rip you to shreds. So we're not really remarkable in our body side. We're, we're kind of a really weak beast. We have our soul side that could more than compensate, of course. But someone who chooses to behave in a way that doesn't control their impulses – Indeed, we're pointing out that they are acting like an animal. Now, the end of the verse here, it's a, a meal offering of remembrance, a reminder of sin. Uh, Rashi says here that this, this activity, this, it's always going to be evoked, and it's always going to spur the wrath of God and the wrath of her husband. Um, we find in Jewish sources that... When someone, when someone sins and wants to repent, atone for their sin, so long as they remember the specifics of the sin, it's an evidence that the sin is still there in, in their kind of ethos. Whereas when someone forgets the sin entirely, that shows that they kind of have expunged it from within them. They remove, they cleanse themselves from the sin. It's important when we talk about repentance on Yom Kippur, for example, it's a whole day dedicated to repent, and we invoke sins. We did this sin, we did that sin, we want to repent. It's important not to ruminate too much upon the sins, because you can say, I did this, and yet it wasn't, actually, it wasn't that bad, actually. You know, that's, that, that's a grave danger, because you're, you're creating a permanent edifice for the sin. So what happens to this woman? So she's brought to the Kohen, she brings the sacrifice, the Kohen tells her, that uh, he warns her again, if you, um, if you did it, you could still admit what you did, and then you'll have to divorce your husband. Um, but you won't have to undergo this process, and you won't be killed because there's no witnesses. If someone comes to court and admits what they did, I am, I'm here and I, I admit it, 
it's not there. Nothing happens to them because unless there's witnesses, a person can a person cannot be a witness against themselves. It's not possible. Like we said, past tweets. If someone is a te- testifies against themselves, well, their testimony itself invalidates their testimony because the testimony makes them a sinner. Sinners, we don't believe. So it's not valid for someone to admit that they are guilty. Now, if someone admits that they owe money, that's one thing. But someone admits that they committed a sin, we don't believe them. The only way we believe them is if they, uh, is if they, if there's witnesses. But if the woman says that she committed adultery, she would need to divorce her. Her she wouldn't be divorced from her husband because when a woman commits adultery, she is no longer able to be with her husband. Uh, so she has a chance if she wants to admit, to confess, and she'd be fine. If not, then there's a whole series of activities that happen to her. Uh, she's ashamed. They uncover her hair, which, by the way, is the source. This is the source that Jewish women cover their hair. It's the fact that it was um, clear that her hair was covered and her hair gets uncovered. And he tells her that we're going to create a certain potion, a certain drink that will prove whether or not you were guilty or innocent. If you were guilty, it's going to kill you. If you were innocent, it's going to make your life actually very, very good. And the potion is certain water mixed with certain dust. And this entire portion of the of the Torah is written on a parchment with ink, and the ink is dipped in the water, and all the ink gets absorbed by the water. And she drinks that, and it's very clear that if she sinned, this water would actually cause her to explode. Might not explode right away. It might delay for a week or a day or an hour or a minute. But it might, but it will result in her exploding. Now, if she didn't sin, this would result in her life being vastly improved. That's what it says. Now, the Ramban, he tries to understand what's going on over here. And he says that the entire Torah, with the exception of this particular law, does not rely on miracles. The actual activities of the laws of the Torah, none of them are hinging upon a miracle with the exception of this one. This one was a miracle. That the Almighty says, I'm going to be the one to verify, follow this process, and it will prove one way or the other. This is the only time that uh, that there was a miracle that the Almighty says, I want, we're going to use a miracle for the ongoing judicial procedures. And indeed, for the duration of the time when the Jews were in Israel, when they had the temple... They had this miracle that it the waters of the Sota would work to determine the uh, the guilt or innocence of suspected adulteresses. The reason why, says the Ramban, why do we need a miracle? Is because to distance ourselves from the ways of the land. It was common uh, promiscuity and adultery was common. All, all the nations there was adultery that was rampant. Now, adultery causes a lot of problems because adultery causes a mamzer. Mamzer is bastards. And bastards are uh, cause corruption and dilution. Um, and they can't marry amongst the people. And then it prevents the Shekhinah from being part of the nation. 
And therefore, in order to prevent that, the Almighty said, I'm going to make a miracle that's ongoing, ever-present, to ensure that the community stays pure. I think today, somehow, uh, adultery became accepted. Uh, it's, it's really strange. Everyone seems to agree, almost everyone seems to agree, that murder is bad. It cannot be tolerated. It's evident from the Torah that, yes, murder is bad and it's an executable offense. But what about adultery? It's also an executable offense. Thus, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, because our society has, unfortunately, somehow made this okay. We don't seem to see, see what's wrong with it. Uh, but this, this, this sounds strange to us. You know, adultery is... It's been so almost accepted. It's it's really really bizarre, um, and the Talmud does say that once there was an uptick in adulterers amongst the nation, they stopped giving the waters of the sota, they stopped administering it. But if people don't appreciate why it's a good thing, it's a boon, it's a benefit. It's a benefit. We want to keep the Jewish nation clean, so to speak, pure. If the people are not willing. They don't want it. They opt out of it. Okay, you don't have to have it. So does the benefit for us because it ensures that our nation remains pure and our, and our continuity remains pure. And we don't uh, develop spiritual blemishes that, that continue and per- perpetuate in perpetuity. If people say, we, we don't want it, you don't want it, okay, you don't have to have it. But this is a miracle the mighty is going to give us for our benefit. There's an interesting note here. The Talmud says that if a woman has merit, she would, uh, she would, it would delay it. It would delay the explosion. Maybe a year, maybe two years. It would be late onset. Some, sometimes it would happen immediately. Talmud describes what happens when it happened immediately. So the woman's exploding. So they would rush her out of the building because the building's full of coins. And she's going to die and we don't want a dead person in the building. Everyone needs to start over and get all the sacrifices and all that. So they'd rush her out to let her die outside. But sometimes she would, it, it would uh, take a while. Uh, Talmud launches in a whole discussion of mitzvot and Torah of which provides protection against bad things and for how long does it provide protection. So one of the most famous Gemaras about the value and the impact and the protection and the shielding of Torah and mitzvot is based upon this particular law that a sota, if she has merit, she's able to delay uh, because of the merit. The merit will shield her from bad things happening to her, even if she did sin. Because she has other merits that would shield her from it. Okay, so after we learn about the sota, we learn about the nazir. The nazir is someone who makes a vow to abstain from wine and grapes and all the uh, derivatives of grapes and not in co- to come in contact with dead people and not to get a haircut for a minimum of 30 days. That's the Nazir. And the way it starts off, uh, Hashem spoke to Moshe, tell the Jewish people, a man or woman, he yafli lindor neder, disassociate himself by taking a Nazarite vow of abstinence, Nazir lahazir lashem, for the sake of Hashem. If you read this in Hebrew, Yafli is from the word Pella, which means a wonder. So the Ibn Ezra, he kicks off this section by saying 
that it's actually a wonder to see something like this. This is someone who is voluntarily abstaining from physical pleasures. And something like that in a world where everyone is pursuing physical pleasures, someone who says, I want to curb pursuit of physical pleasures so can, so I can embrace spiritual pleasures, something like that is an absolute wonder. You don't see this. It's just it's, – it's, it's a sight to behold. Uh, it's, we're not used – we're not accustomed seeing people to go this way. Now, the Talmud, brought down by Rashi here, asks, why is the Nazir juxtaposed to the story of the Sota? In fact, if you look in the Talmud, the book of Nazir, which essentially should belong amongst all the other tractates that deal with sacrifices, it's actually placed right before Sota, next to each other. Talmud asks, well, why is Sota and Nazir, both in the Torah and the Talmud, why are they next to each other? So Rashi says a very powerful idea. It's almost the, uh, became the mantra, one of the mantras of, of the idea of Musar, that says, someone who sees a Sota in her disgrace shall make himself a Nazir from wine. Why? Because uh, wine leads to frivolity, to, to levity, and can potentially lead to adultery, and therefore someone sees someone else committing adultery, they have to try to prevent themselves from falling along in the same pattern, and therefore they stop and say, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to drink wine. I'm going to kind of curb myself from wine for a couple of days. A minimum of 30. When unstated, it's 30, but it could be for any amount of time. Now, I think before we begin here, when someone sees someone else do adultery and they want to be prevented from that same uh, result, perhaps they should say, I'm committing myself to not do adultery. We're told here they're supposed to say, I don't, I'm not going to do any wine. And I think this, this shows us that sins, especially one of such gravity, don't happen suddenly. There's always a germination and a process. You know, uh, I think adultery is quite common in work environments. And that shows is that when, uh, when people kind of get flirtatious and become too close to other people that aren't their spouses, it's quite likely that over time there's going to be a kind of a relaxing of barriers and that could result in something like this eventually happening. You know, a lot of, a lot of people give, were giving, there was a big news story about uh, Mike Pence. I don't like talking about politics, but this is relevant, where there's the news story that he doesn't have lunch with any females unless his wife is there. And a lot of people think, well, how many women lost good opportunities? There's ways to spin it, of course. There's always ways to spin it. But I think according to halacha, there's actually a law not to be secluded with the woman that's not your spouse unless someone's there with some sort of protection. It's, it sounds laughable. Like, oh, he's not going to have lunch with a woman. Why not? And the truth is, is that here we see that we're not trying to stop the sin when the sin is already there and present. We're stopping the sin way before at the earliest stages of when the sin is starting to develop, when there's a certain kind of levity and relaxation. Let's have some wine. Let's get a little comfortable, that is already the beginning stages that may result in adultery down the line. Stop it before it gets at a hand. 
another deep insight here is that when someone, we're told, when someone sees a sota, he has to prevent himself from falling prey to the same result. Our instinct is when we see someone else sinning, we like to cast labels against them. They're sinners. They're bad people. Where's their self-control? Here we're told when you see someone else sinning, you have to look inwardly and say, well, I can reach the same result and I have to prevent myself. Don't try to blame them. Maybe, yes, they are sinners, but integrate it in to your own life and say, I want to take a lesson from this. The Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidus, he famously said, the world is a mirror. Every misdeed you see in other people is a reflection on yourself and you have to find a way to make sure that you, it's a lesson for you. But um, it's interesting. If you look at the words of Rosh, the words of the Talmud, it says quite clearly, if you see a sota in her disgrace, in her shame, then you should be the one who says, I'm, I'm going to become a Nazir, prevent the same result from happening to me. What this means is, is that even, this is not when someone sees the alluring part of sin. This is when someone sees the shameful results of sin. Then it's also a risk for it to become, that it can happen to you. And, and I think the idea is like, you see a, the result of the sin. There's, there's, there's devastation. There's disgrace. There's aftershocks. But that already plants a seed within you that it could happen to you. Like once you see something really bad, it makes it more possible for it to happen by you. Just hearing, like hearing the news of any crime, even if it's the criminal was caught, but now there's this, it becomes into your realm. In your, in your periphery, it's possible for this now. Your purview now has been breached. The notion of this sin becoming possible is now real. It now exists within you, and therefore you're at a greater risk, even though you're seeing the shameful result, but you're at a greater risk of now f- following the same path. Okay, so... For the day, for the years of the time of the Nazir, uh, he should not have a razor on his head. Don't come in contact with dead people. Why is the Nazir not allowed to come into contact with dead people? So there's a few interesting reasons given here. Um, one, the Balaturim says that the Nazir, done properly, would reach prophecy. And therefore, there's a danger. If he's coming into contact with dead people, some may argue the reason why he got prophecy is he did some sort of necromancy talking to dead people all that voodoo stuff and that's how he reached prophecy and in order to prevent that for the duration of his prophecy for the duration of his uh, uh, nazir period he does not come in contact with dead people the Sephorno says something very fascinating here he says that the coin gadol the greatest spiritual leader of the people is someone who's never come, never allowed to come in contact with dead people, right? Even his father, even his mother, not, no one. Now, for us, what would it be like to become a Kohen Gadol? If we could be a Kohen Gadol for a day, like, wouldn't that be amazing? Uh, to be totally spiritual, totally uplifted, wouldn't that be fantastic? What the Nazir is able to accomplish is that for a small period to reach the spiritual heights of a coin godal and to be totally 
removes from the kind of physical plane to the spiritual plane. And therefore, just like the Kohen Gadol does not come into contact with dead people, even relatives, because he's at the spiritual height that he can't go down even for very important things, so too the Nazir is lighted as well. And he brings a, an amazing Gemara. It tells about uh, Shmuel. Shmuel is one of the great names. He's the founder of uh, the, one of the great yeshivos in, uh, in Babylon. And his father sent him to study. And he sent him from Tiberia to Nitzivan. And then he got news that his son Shmuel in Nitzivan is doing all kinds of kindness. He's been very kind. So he's upset about that. Why? I sent you to study Torah. Torah is the highest thing. Don't do kindness for me. And he has this line. He's like, are there not enough graves in Tiberia that I had to send you to Nitzivan? He kind of uses the same words. People complained when they left Egypt. Are there not enough graves in Egypt? He says, well, there are not enough graves here. You want to go help people bury dead people, do a lot of kindness. There's a lot of graves here. I sent you to the great yeshivas to study Torah and not to do anything else. And the idea being is that Anazir, like a Torah scholar, he's doing the most important, he's the, high, the highest spiritual plateau. Therefore, he shouldn't do even something which is important. Yeah, of course, like burying people, being involved in that with the mitzvah. But don't drop your stature, don't drop your level to do things that are less important. Now, when he's done, he goes, cut, cuts his hair, um, and... <coughs> Comes to the temple, brings a sacrifice. But the Talmud, the, the verse talks about what happens if he by mistake becomes impure. He has to start from scratch. So he has to go to the temple, shave his hair, become purified, bring sacrifices, and start from scratch. He has to have the, the entire period uh, to become pure. Why does he bring a sacrifice? A very famous Rashi quotes from the Talmud in verse 11. He means a sacrifice because he sinned. Why is he being a sin offering? Because he caused himself pain from abstaining from wine. This Nazir, yes, he's at the spiritual acme of the world. He's like a coin god doll. But there is an element, there's a lining of sin. Because he was one who sinned by abstaining from worldly pleasures. The Torah gave gave us enough things that are prohibited. There's enough things that are prohibited. And the Torah's objective is not to make our life here less pleasurable, it's to make our life here more pleasurable. That's the objective. And now, of course, it might seem like that's not true. But the true objective of a Torah lifestyle is to have more pleasure, not less. Not just in Olam Abba, but here as well. So some people like to say, you know what? I'll suffer here. I'll suffer. But I know that in heaven, I'll get paid for it. It's a mistake. If you're suffering by doing mitzvot, you're doing it wrong. You're supposed to have joy. The Nazir is someone who says, I want to withhold from joy. That, says the Torah, it's a little bit of a sin. You have to be a sin sacrifice for that. Now, when the Nazir is finished, his duration, verse 13, a very interesting verse. You read it simply. It doesn't make any sense, right? This should be the law of the Nazir. On the day his abstinence is completed, he shall bring himself to the entrance of the tent of meaning. He brings himself. What does it mean he brings himself? So Rashi says he, he takes himself, he brings himself. Well, if he just comes, he brings himself, of course. So my grandfather had an interesting idea. He says whenever someone has 
a spiritual stature that they're getting uplifted, they always have someone accompanying them. Like if someone goes to get married, right? There's always people that walk them to the chuppah, to the canopy. Why? Because now you're getting uplifted, upgrading. As a human, you have to have people walk you. Even there's a halacha is when they bring a child to, to have a circumcision, they, there's a mitzvah to bring them. Someone, so other people have to carry him and bring him. Of course, he can't get there himself, yes. But there's a mitzvah for them to be accompanied by other people. Whenever someone has, before they weren't circumcised, they weren't kind of part of the Jewish people spiritually. Now they're joining the Jewish people spiritually. They're kind of being upgraded. They need to have someone who's more important, so to speak, bring them. When someone is becoming, uh, he he was a Nazir, now he's becoming not a Nazir, there's a certain level that he's being upgraded. But previously, he was like a Kohen God, that was like a high priest. So who could walk him? Who, who could be someone who's more important than him who's bringing him to this now new stature? Nobody. But he still has to have someone accompany him. So he has to bring himself. He has to, be, he has to accompany himself towards this, uh, this level. He brings there, brings, brings, he comes, comes to the temple, brings sacrifices, and is finally allowed to have his hair cut. And all the proce- uh, procedures of the sacrifices are done. And the next thing is when we get the priestly blessings. We know the Kohen spe- said spe- uh, is required to do, give special blessings to the Jewish people. And here is where we are told what they are. Three verses. Shem will bless you and guard you, which means when Shem blesses you, it should be a lasting blessing. It's great to have a huge bounty of blessing, but if you lose that, someone comes and steals your blessing, that's not good. So Hashem will bless you and will guard you. Hashem will show his countenance to you and be gracious towards you. Hashem will lift his face towards you and place upon you peace. So actually in Israel, every day the, the custom is that the Kohens during the prayer, they actually say these blessings to the entire assemblage. In Elsewhere, outside of Israel, the custom is said only during holidays, during festivals. With the exception of this, some Sephardic communities, they do it every day. But otherwise, they don't, they, it, only in Israel they do it every day. Here they do it uh, only during festivals. There's an interesting note here because it, it goes in ascending order. So first, the mighty will bless you, guard you. The mighty will give you favor. And finally, he will... Lift his countenance to you. So what does that mean? Rashi says two words. Yichbosh ka'aso. God will curb his anger. And it's a remarkable statement that the greatest blessing that God did, the highest blessing, is that God curbs his anger. It doesn't sound like to us. We're like, we're good, right? We're the ones who are studying Torah. We're doing mitzvot. We're good. We're chummy-chummy with God, right? Other people, the God is angry at. But here it's all, the Jewish nation, we need God to curb his anger. That's the, the attitude, so to speak, is that if someone doesn't serve God perfectly, then the most appropriate thing for him is to die right away. But God curbs his anger and allows us to repent and gives us free will and gives us a reign, so to speak. But the highest level, the thing we're really striving for is that we know we're not perfect, 
And the only thing that gives us life and continuity is the fact that God holds us in. That's the highest blessing. Very powerful idea that we're not used to, uh, we're not used to thinking about. Okay, chapter 7. I think it's the longest chapter in the whole Torah. Not that these chapters really have any meaning, because the chapters are not of Jewish origin. That from the Archduke of Canterbury in the 12th century decided to make more organization for the Torah. They didn't like the fact that it wasn't organized. We weren't good at organizing, so they put chapters and, and verses. My grandfather would never quote a verse by saying the chapter and verse number. Never. He would only say what section, because according to Jewish tradition, it's broken down into sections. Every every parsha is broken, broken down into seven sections, which correspond to the seven aliyos that we give on Shabbos. So you would say, in Parshas Naso, this Parsha, in Chamishi, in the fifth section, it says this. Okay, so the last part of the Parsha talks about the final erecting of the Mishkan, and on the day that it was erected, there is a series, or on the week of its erection, there is a series of offerings brought by the Nisim, the heads of the tribe. So it was on the day when Moshe finished completing the Mishkan, and he uh, sanctified and anointed it. He poured that special oil that we talked about in Leviticus on it. And the leaders of the tribe, they bring offerings. And they transport all the items and wagons and oxen. And finally, Hashem tells Moshe, and each day, one leader each day bring their offerings to the dedication of the altar. And day one, day two, day three... 12 days of offerings for the 12 tribes. So first of all, uh, verse 1 says that it was when Moshe finished building the Mishkan. Now Moshe finished building, but he had a lot of helpers. There was Betzalel and Aliyah. A lot of people worked on building the Mishkan. Why are we uh, attributing it to Moshe? So Rashi says, a very powerful idea, that even though everyone else worked hard on the Mishkan, Moshe was the one who had total dedication towards the whole project. Every element of every project was under – he was the executive director. Everything was on his shoulders. And because he had committed himself to it, therefore, it was ascribed to him. It was attributed to him. And the idea being is that whatever we want to make our own, we want to be ours, we have to have be totally dedicated towards it. In any project in life, whoever the, whoever the per, is the person who's totally invested, who totally has self-sacrifice and commitment to any given project, it becomes his project. So this the Mishkan, because Moshe, of course there are a lot of helpers, but Moshe was the one who lost sleep over it. This was his baby, so to speak. Therefore, because we, the Torah uh, attributes it to him. Additionally, we see that the um, Nisim, these these princes, the heads of the tribe, they jumped and they made sure to make bid donations at the beginning once the Mishnah was erected. And the reason why, Rashi tells us that half a year prior when they started collecting the funds and the materials to build the Mishkan, the Nesim, these were the princes, these were the leaders of the tribe, they said, you know what, we're going to wait for everyone else to donate, we'll see whatever is missing. And we'll, fill, we'll plug the gaps. And there was such an overwhelming outpouring of support that everything plus more than needed, even excess, was donated by the crowd and they were left with nothing. They, they weren't able to donate because they said, we'll wait till the end. 
And therefore, now there's a second opportunity. Once the Mishnah is established, they said, no, 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 before anyone else says anything, we're going to jump ahead. And that's kind of similar to the uh, dictum uh, of the Chip, uh, Perky Avos. Don't say, I'll do something when it comes. When I, I'll, when I have the opportunity to do something, then I'll do it. Because you don't know, maybe you won't have that opportunity. Then the Nassim, they said, when it, whenever there's a need, whenever we feel like it's, whenever the time comes for us to do it, then we'll do it. Time may never come. Now, the rest of the bulk of the rest of the Parsha is going to go through day by day the offerings of each one of these princes. And what's remarkable is that they all bring identical offerings, uh, yet the Torah repeats in detail the offering of each one of them. So let's go through one of them. A silver bowl that weighs 130 shekels, a silver basin filled with flour with oil, mixed with oil, a gold ladle filled with incense, a bull, a ram, a sheep, a goat, two cattle, five rams, Five goats, five sheep. That's the specific offering of each of each head of the tribe. And that's day one was from the tribe of Judah, day two, tribe of Yisachar, etc., etc. And the obvious question is, the Torah is very skimpy on its words. Why would the Torah spend, expend so much precious space to repeat the same exact thing again and again? Uh, additionally, another question is that if you look at Rashi, Rashi gives us the reasons why, the specific meanings behind each one of these offerings. So, for example, when it talks about uh, a gold ladle, that refers to like ladle similar to a hand, and it's trying to evoke the fact that the Torah was given from the hand of God. That was the meaning behind it. A lot of symbolism here. Uh, for example, uh, one of them, Rashi tells us, is the same gematria as Tariaga 613. Rashi goes through all, all of them, what, what, what they, uh, what they um, represent. Uh, the, the gold ladle, is, it's, it has a weight of 10, 10 shekels. Why 10 shekels? That responds to the Ten Commandments. Each one of these here. And they look in the art scroll, they, they, they give us the back, back story of each one of them. But what's really surprising is that Rashi only tells us the meaning behind each one, the... the what was the intention behind each one of these offerings in the second tribe, not the first tribe? And I think the lesson behind this is that you would think perhaps that each one of them was copying. They all brought their precise, uh, exact offering because they said, oh, what did the guy do yesterday? I'll do the same thing. But Rashi tells us the meaning behind it on the second one. Don't say that he was copying it. He, he, he just said, I'll just copy what the first guy did. No, no, no. The meaning was in the second one. Each one had their own individual meaning. Moreover, the my grandfather's teacher, Rabbi Rucham Lovavitz, has a whole essay on this question. Why, why was it repeated again and again? And he said that each one of them independently was able to understand these particular meanings and on their own arrived at the same conclusion. And he said, he's a whole, a whole beautiful essay on this, that sometimes people study Torah and they have an idea, a question or an answer or an insight. And then someone says, well, you weren't the first one to say that. This was said by this commentary, by that commentary. And that's kind of frustrating, right? Because you want to have your own independent idea. But the truth is, there's no greater happiness than to know that you're thinking straight. 
When you ask a question and Rabbi Ader asks the same question, it means that your mind is screwed on straight. I mean, you're thinking logically the way others of great intellect and great Torah caliber have thought before you. And he says, when you go along the highway, if you're traveling from here to Austin, and you go along the highway, you'll find a lot of people going in the same direction. Tons of people. Every, but if you try to make your own path through the woods in some circuitous way that may or may not arrive at the destination, you may arrive in, uh, you may arrive in New Orleans, another direction. Right? If you're going on a path that's not going to lead to the destination, you won't find anyone. If you're alone in the woods, you're alone in the thicket, chart, you know, forging and charting your own path ahead, it's very likely you won't find anyone. And the reason why, when you're going in the right direction, you find other people along the way. And then he says this amazing story with uh, a Rosh Hashiva by the name of Reb Naftali Trupp. He was Rosh Hashiva in Raden, died in 1929, I believe. Uh, I have a copy of his book in my office. Amazing, amazing book on Torah insights in the Talmud. But this great rabbi, he would always study the works of the Rashba. The Rashba is one of the most voluminous medieval commentators in the Talmud. And he would always try to study the way of the Rashba. And Rabbi Rucham writes that he once went over to this great rabbi and says to him, I have a question of the Rashba. I want to see if you could guess his answer. Could he, could he perhaps guess his answer? So he told him the question. And says, he asked him, he says, I want you to try to figure out what do you think the Rashba's answer to this question is? So he sat and thought. And he came up with an answer. And he says, no, no, no. Why don't you give me a different answer? So he thought again and gave a second answer. And he says, ah, give me a third answer. He gave him a third answer. Three answers to one question. And then he opens up the book and shows him that this Rashba's question, and he gives three answers in the same exact order that this other rabbi assumed that, in the same exact order. He starts with this answer, second answer, third answer. And he was, everyone was very excited because he had really imparted himself the way of thinking of someone else. These Nisim, each one of them on their own, they had a logical and spiritual way of thought that independently they all arrived at the same conclusion. What is the appropriate meaning and the appropriate offering for this time period and this experience? And therefore the Torah repeats it again and again. It's, it's, it's 70 verses, which is very precious. Uh, the Torah doesn't expend those verses for nothing, but goes through one after another after another to know that these are each individual experiences, not just copying what they found uh, by their predecessors. And the parsha essentially ends with the conclusion and tallying of this, these offerings. And finally, at the end of the parsha, Moshe goes into the Mishkan and he talks to the Almighty, and that's going to be the way, the venue for his prophecy for the duration of the Torah.